Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we give our kids a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but, or if our childhood was fine, maybe recent trauma is taking up so much of our attention that we can't be present with our kids. Today, we have a really exciting guest. Elise Kennedy and I have been interacting a lot on social media. She has a new book out that I love that I feel like everybody should be checking out, especially if you're interested in parts work. The book is called The Tender Parts. You can find it on Amazon, pretty much wherever you get books. So Elise is a licensed professional counselor. She's a trauma therapist, an author. She's a group practice owner. So we have that in common. She's located in Austin, Texas. She specializes in working with complex trauma through the lifespan. And this is exciting for us. She specializes in helping parents unpack their own trauma while parenting their children. Her book, The Tender Parts, was released in November and is a book for those looking to more deeply explore their inner world and understand trauma through parts work. Elise and I have interacted on Instagram. You should check out her Instagram. It's really cool. And there's a lot of great videos. She's also on TikTok, which means she has more guts than I do. And she also provides, like on all of her platforms, she provides a lot of mental health insight and a lot of talking about trauma and parts work. Welcome to the podcast, Elise. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to parts work and what got you interested in it? Absolutely. So when I was in grad school, I had, well, actually, I should say first. So I found out I was pregnant right before I got into grad school. And so in the beginnings of grad school, when I was becoming a therapist, I was also raising my first child, which led a lot of what I was taking in from grad school. And I had a really wonderful professor, Sunny Lansdale, who is an incredible trauma therapist. Sunny had this really lovely way of looking at trauma. I was really lucky to be first in her like human growth and development class where I learned a lot about attachment, which really informed my early days of parenting. And then in her trauma class, she introduced me to parts work and it really clicked for me. I think for any of us who have experienced trauma, we so often after the trauma, we can see things really in black and white just because of how trauma affects our brain and the way that we understand ourselves. And so with this idea of parts work, instead of Seeing ourselves in black and white, we can understand the complexities that we have inside, that we actually have many parts of ourselves that all have different jobs and functions within our system, and we utilize those different parts as we go through the day. Sometimes those parts of ourselves take over and cause us to have behaviors that we might not necessarily be proud of, like we're 
coming up against our children, sometimes we respond with parts that we don't necessarily want to. And then, but when we learn to get to know our parts better, we come to a deeper understanding of ourselves and we can better work with those parts so that they don't take over as much. I feel like I have to say I resonate with some of what you're saying about um, being like a mom in grad school. Like there's something about learning about attachment on a very deep level while you are parenting. In my in my graduate program, I think I was the I was I was definitely the only person who applied pregnant. And but I definitely <laughs> was um, I definitely was the only mom at like the beginning of our program for sure. And there's something trippy about like learning this stuff while you actually have an infant because you 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 resonate to it. It's not academic and theoretical. It's also like, oh, there's a baby at home. And, you know, that I, I felt that I felt like I learned child development. I was also very lucky to work with a great child development professor, um, Dr. Sandy McClary. And also same thing. It was like learning child development from an expert while parenting. It's like a superpower. I was just talking to a young grad student and she was talking about how hard it is to be like the working mom grad student in her class. Also, she's the only mom in her program. And I said, but it's also a superpower. For learning how to do psychotherapy, for understanding trauma work, it's an absolute superpower. So when you're saying, you know, parts work, I feel like a lot of post-traumatic parents are like they either know it, they don't know it, maybe they've read it, maybe they're working with a therapist. I feel like we say like parts a lot and then people like either are like, but do I know what that is? It's sort of like object relations like back in the day when people were like, but what's the object? Like, you yeah. know, it's a little confusing at first. So if you were going to explain parts to like someone who is just starting out on her journey, how would you explain it? I come from an internal family systems background, which is a modality created by Dick Schwartz. And I think it's helpful to know a bit of his history of how he created the model. So he was a family therapist. And when he was in his grad program, he was working with a lot of disordered eating. And at that time, we worked with disordered eating from a systemic perspective. So it was treating the whole family instead of just the patient or just the person that was experiencing disordered eating. And what he was noticing was that when the people he was working with would talk about disordered eating, they would talk about it as if it were like a part of them, as if it were like an entity inside of that. Like um, part and of so, me wants to eat, but part of me right. really doesn't. Exactly. And so there was like this way that he was seeing the eating disorder sort of embodied within people. And so he applied his, his uh, systems perspective to the inner world. So he imagines that we all have an internal family system inside of us. I consider the parts to be sort of like entities within us. When I feel my parts come up, I can feel them I can feel a sensation that goes with it. So I notice like how it feels or shows up within my body. I receive messages from my parts, which sounds a little strange and maybe woo-woo for those who are not as well-versed, but it's like it lights up an area of your brain. And so when you highlight 
how the part feels in your body and then are open to receiving messages from it, it helps us to better understand the part. And so we can, the different parts of us can be sort of these entities that do, that help us to do jobs and exist out in the world. Like we might develop like a people pleasing part to make sure that we're safe because we're light, or we might develop a workaholic part to like help us focus, but that might also help us numb out in some ways. We might develop, well, I know I have a reality television part that helps me unwind at night from long days working with trauma. And so all of these parts within us help us to exist out in the world. And then there's also this idea that we also have self-energy, which is like the core of ourselves. When I'm feeling my self-energy, I feel very centered and regulated. I'm in a place to both communicate and receive the people in front of me and connect fully with them while connecting fully with myself. And when we're in self-energy, it doesn't mean that none of our parts are present, but it just means that our parts maybe aren't as active because we're offering them self-energy. I think that on the one hand, yes, I feel like when I first started reading about internal family systems, there were part there were things about it that did sound a little woo-woo, but then from like a face validity perspective, I mean, which human hasn't had a fight with themselves, right? Which human hasn't like sort of been like, yeah, my boss is asking me to stay and I don't like saying no. And like, you know, maybe she'll be mad at me. Maybe she'll judge me. But then again, I really wanted to go home and have time, take my kids to the playground while it's still light outside. And like, right, like that. I think we've all experienced internal conflict. You read a novel, the whole point of a novel is internal conflict, right? And I think that in that sense, it doesn't sound woo-woo at all. It sounds like exactly how humans speak about themselves, tell stories about themselves. Pretty much every single novel is, you know, internal conflict. That's what we're having. Maybe external conflict too, but plenty of (laughs) internal conflict. Definitely. When you're a post-traumatic parent, do you see trauma as sort of like a special complication in parenting, like with your own clients? It's interesting because, and I think this was the case for myself as a parent too, along with clients. So I specialized and got trained in perinatal mental health disorders because I struggled with that as a new parent. I had very intense postpartum depression with my first child. And I would have these parents that would come to me uh, experiencing postpartum depression. And as we explored deeper, a lot of what happened would actually be connected to their own childhoods and their own trauma that was coming up in the face of becoming a parent. And I think because becoming a parent is such a profound change on every single level. Like we literally biologically change when we become parents. And so we come face to face with our own history. Like a lot of us can't help but see ourselves in our children. 
And along with coming face to face with our own history, we're experiencing these intense biological changes, a huge life change. So we also have like this oftentimes grief that we don't even know that we're allowed to touch into about moving from this old life to this new life. And so I think parenthood just dredges up all of the shit for everyone. Yes. I think that for, I think that with a lot of people, it's like, I just learned coping tools and I just learned how to keep myself together. And maybe some of them were in healthy coping tools. Like I learned how to people please so that I don't get criticized or I learned right. how to like be a workaholic so that I don't have these existential fears of being poor like I was when I grew up, right? Or things like that. Or I just learned boundaries and I just learned how to be like to say no to people. And now I have this little tiny human who won't take no for an answer or two in the morning <laughs> as one shouldn't when one is a newborn, but still, right? And like then it sort of starts to fall apart and then you're grieving the like sense of like, I just developed agency. I just figured this out. On the one hand, you're grieving your old self. You're grieving the like adult independent self you had. And then sometimes you're grieving the baby that you were that didn't get what your baby's getting. Exactly. And that's just hard. And I feel like I feel like when we've experienced trauma, it so adds this like layer to parenting, especially if we've just become conscious of our of our trauma or if it's suddenly like you're looking at this kid and you're like, wait, what was I doing when I was six? I had in my post-traumatic parenting classes, I had a mom who said it was so true. It resonated with me because her her childhood was somewhat similar to mine in this detail that, you know, she had a very ill mom growing up. I think her mom, I think her mom had bipolar or, but she was like in and out of hospitals and was very depressed and was not functional at all. She was basically running the house. At age 11, she was doing homework with her younger siblings. She was feeding the kids dinner. She was cleaning the house. Um, and now she has an 11-year-old daughter. And her daughter, like, didn't do a chore. She asked her daughter to, like, clear the table, and her daughter didn't do it. And she was enraged. And then she's like, my kid is normal. 11-year-olds forget to clear the table. And my kid feels free to forget to clear the table because she knows that there's a mom who's running this home who is not her. And she can be a typical, like, kind of irresponsible 11-year-old, but nor psychologically normative irresponsibility, right? Like this, this mom understood that it is so normal for an 11 year old to forget a chore. Like that is completely typical and expected in a secure and healthy home, right? In, in her house, she wasn't going to forget the chore because she was basically mom. So it fell on her, but her daughter was free to do this. And she's like, why am I enraged at her? This is what I wanted. I wanted her to have a normal childhood. And that realization of like, yeah, because when you were 11, you weren't afforded this opportunity. I think for a lot of post-traumatic parents, and whether that's like, oh, my gosh, my five-year-old is so uninhibited and happy, or, you know, my six-year-old knows to come to me when she's scared of something, you're grieving the little you that didn't get to do that. And that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I, when parents are talking about, like, the struggles that they're having with their children misbehaving. So often I highlight like your child feels safe enough to do that in front of you. And I think it can help to reframe it 
so much to just recognize like you've offered enough safety in your household that your child knows it's okay to fall apart. It's okay to talk back to you as much as that bumps up against our own parts. But when you say like you can feel the little you, I think that's been a really powerful piece of parts work for me is that I think in on social media, especially in the past few years, there's been a lot of push toward like recognizing your inner child and that's beautiful. And it's also extremely triggering. It can be extremely triggering, especially for those of us who had a traumatic childhood and we can feel this pressure to like connect with our inner child. And what I really like about heart's work versus inner child work is that it allows us to more slowly connect with the young ones within us because I consider my own young ones within me, if we consider them to be children, we wouldn't push our children to just get to know a stranger. And so when we can recognize the presence of a young one within us, and especially how that gets stirred with our own children, we can more slowly get to know them instead of just immediately connecting with them in a way that doesn't feel comfortable. Yeah, I feel like connecting with your inner child when it's not done well, when there's not a lot of um, proper preparation with it can feel very triggering, very overwhelming. Like you can go into a real, like you almost get stuck in a real much younger state. And what I always say is like your inner child can't parent a child. Your inner child can help you. I like to use my inner child sometimes as a check in for what was I like? Not only what was I like at 11, but what's it like to be 11? Or what's it like to be nine? Like, you know, that helps inform me. I'm not a big believer in, you know, those who are like, let's raise our inner child. Let's dismiss our inner child. I always want my inner child. It's one part of me. I need to check in with my inner child sometimes because it really does remind me what 12 was like, what two was like, what seven was like. It's important to remember that, like from a real insider's perspective. And what I sometimes tell parents to do when they can't do that or they don't want to go to their inner child is just read an author who writes that age group really well. Like read Judy Bloom. Like, you know, like you want to remember what it feels like to be an 11-year-old girl. Like find an author who captures that voice, who captures that sensation, like what it's like to be a second grader. You know, like read those books. I had a parent, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Joey Pigs books about ADHD older book. It's like, it's a cute little book. I would say it's about like a nine-year-old boy with ADHD. Um, It's very accurate in terms of both child development and the voice is very accurate. And I just had a mom like, let's just understand what it means to be a nine-year-old boy with ADHD. Just read the book, immerse yourself in it, like read it, suspend your disbelief. And then afterwards, she's like, oh, now I get what you're telling me. Like, I see this now. Like, this kid is going in the book. You get the sense of he's going from thing to thing to thing to thing. And then the first thing. And then he messes up because he forgot about the third thing. And, you know, like, and then there's this giant chain of events. And it's very funny. I always find if a parent can't go there, if they can't go there with their inner child, great. So go there with someone else's inner child. It's less triggering. It's less scary. But we do have to remember what that age group was like. Like, what was it? I find this a lot that when I cannot connect with my, you know, like when I can't read the world through my 12-year-old daughter's perspective, 
that that's very helpful to me. Like, let me read my journals from age 12. Thank goodness I have them. You know, or let me read a book that was written in an age 12 voice. Okay, now I remember. Okay. I love that so much. Yeah, I always connect with my inner teenagers through music, which I find really helpful for me. That's like my most connecting thing because it's really been a big key to my emotions throughout my life. And so I find that there are certain songs that really activate like different points in my life where I can take myself back and really connect. Yeah, like just listen to a when I was 16 playlist and yes, right. <laughs> it will, won't take that long to construct one and you will be right back there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it's true. I find for me, you know, sometimes also same thing you know, watching a show from your childhood or for me with teenagers, I do this a lot. I'll ask a kid, like, what are they watching? What are they listening to? What are they, um, what are they into now? Sometimes that means like watching a movie that wouldn't, you know, I I recently, a kid was like, you need to watch this movie because like, this is totally my stepmom. Um, and it was a horror movie and I'm not into horror at all. (laughs) So that was, but you know what? It really helped me like resonate with her And maybe like get the sensation of how she feels when she's the level of rage she feels, I think, was was the point, you know, when she's around her stepmom. It really gave me access to it from like almost a sensory motor perspective that I couldn't get if we were just talking about it. Because I think we can all intellectually understand that you hate your stepmom. Like, fine, we get it. I mean, teenage (laughs) girls are probably going to go through a stage of hating their stepmom, you know, like, you know, but like more like this visceral sense of just how enraged you are and just how much you want to snap and just how on the edge you are. I think I wouldn't have gotten that without that movie as much as, you know, horror is not really not really my genre. (laughs) Yeah, it's like it helps you to literally feel the body sensations that she might have been experiencing when she sees her stepmom. Yeah, and that was just so, for me, so incredibly helpful. In terms of the book, when you were writing it, were there any like surprises for you? I'm finding myself like as I'm writing my book, there are surprises. Like there, I thought I was going one place with a chapter and then I went somewhere completely else. What was surprising to you? That's a really good question. So in my book, it is a psychology book, but it's definitely for like the average person, like as much as it's for clinicians. And I have always sort of been a writer. And so what I find a lot of psychology books use like case examples. And instead of using case examples in my book, I decided to use my own parts because since I've been doing parts work, like in my personal therapy, as well as with clients, I do a lot of journaling with my own parts. And so I opened each chapter with almost like a little journal entry from my own parts. And I think that was actually the most surprising thing for me because I would do that the way that I wrote I would like write my little journal entry first as like a conceptualizing for myself of like this is what happens inside me in response to this certain subject 
And then it would help me structure the chapter, but also like it was their personal. And so it is an exploration of my inner world and my own parts. And so I think that was sort of the most surprising thing, just because I wouldn't exactly know or plan for what would come out. I actually thought that was the coolest part of your book, because I felt like it was so honest and authentic, vulnerable without being like oversharing, you know what I mean? Like without being trauma dumping, because it wasn't a memoir. It was like just that right amount of like, this is how I've done this work, that you you really got a sense of you from it, which I think is very validating for post-traumatic parents, because I feel like when you've been through trauma, at least for me, there's like such a sense of shame and there's such a sense of like, am I the only one here? And I think with trauma, more almost than any other condition that any therapist is going to treat, I feel like if we're not honest and authentic as people who are also on a journey, like then we run the risk of like re-perpetuating the shame. It's like, oh, you people feel this way, but I'm Miss Perfect over here because I'm a therapist. So like, I know everything, <laughs> you know, so like I, yeah, but when, when you have a panic attack, this is what you should do. As opposed to like, you know, we all panic sometimes. Exactly. And I also think with having having experienced your own trauma and being a therapist that treats trauma, we have to have so much awareness. And actually, that's something that's been very helpful for me with parts work, because as therapists, if we're not honest with ourselves, that our own parts are going to come up in the room with clients and we don't know how to acknowledge them so that they don't get in the way in the room. So I know what belongs to me and what belongs to my client. We run the risk of either causing harm or putting our own stuff on our clients. And so I think we both have to have a lot of awareness for how our own trauma sits within us and be doing our own work around it. But also it puts us on the same level as our clients. And I think it helps to give people hope that like, I'm never going to be fully healed because I will always, I will be a lifer in therapy. Same. And, (laughs) and like, that's just what I need weekly to keep myself going because there will always be stuff that comes up for me, but perhaps I'm a little bit farther along on my journey than the people in front of me. Yeah. I feel like with, I always think in terms of resonance, you know, like I can resonate with this without it being about me, but then also without the like analytic side of me taking over because I tend to go to like this very analytic professor, like intellectualizing, you know, that just is where my brain goes when I'm overwhelmed with emotion. That does not help me connect with people's authentic pain. You know, and then when it's like that part of me, it's like, okay, this is very protective. I need to examine this. And I think because those are the things that are are most tender. And sometimes I find that, you know, with post-traumatic parents, what tends to happen, um, especially in therapy, is that's where, you know, it's the most triggering for like, especially if you're you're a fellow post-traumatic parent treating a post-traumatic parent, that's where we have to be really mindful. Definitely. And a lot of the times we're in the thick of it with our clients. Like I've got a lot of my clients have children the same age as me. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing either. 
Um, like I'm having the same issues as you. I I can't tell you. And so I think it's it's like a very vulnerable place to be. And it really pushes you as a clinician to examine your own stuff, how it shows up in the room and how we can be there for our clients, even if we're going in the thick, even if we're in the thick of it with them. I'll never forget during COVID when, not that COVID is over, but in the thick of COVID, um, when it was like very locked down and I was only seeing people virtually, I didn't really take much vacation that year because I was like, well, we're going to, you know, we're virtual anyway. Like I may as well just see people. So it was during Thanksgiving week and I was staying somewhere with my family, but I was seeing clients like two days that week or something. And my son, my husband, and my dad were literally right outside the window being extremely loud while I was in session with a client. And I was like, I'm sorry, can you just give me a second? Like I'm hearing some screaming down there and I need to just like get everything quiet. And so I like knocked on the window and told them to quiet down. And when I came back to the screen, she was like, oh, I'm just glad it's not just me. Right. <laughs> it was such a normalizing moment of like, okay, we're all like in the thick of it, stuck in our homes with our families and young children. And everybody is experiencing the same thing. I think COVID also like really put us on a different level with our clients where we were in the thick of it with them yet still supporting them. Yeah, COVID was, I mean, for so, on so many levels, COVID was, I think, I don't know, just like such a paradigm shift. I know for me, one of the big advantages maybe of COVID is there was something about seeing people in their home, you know, and like getting a sense of like how they live. And, you know, you know, sometimes it was just nice with like, I, I see a lot of kids. So like, you know, oh, their dog walks in and they can like introduce me. And like, you know, that's just like a, a nice way of like bonding or, you know, things like that. But sometimes you get a sense of like, oh, wow, when she says that she and her sister fight over her over their bedroom. I mean, this bedroom is tiny, like, yeah, you know, or like the sister stuff is really everywhere. I can see it. I can see why this very kind of neat perfectionist kid is really not coping well with that. Like, wow, you know, it just gives you a different level of authenticity and nearness. Definitely. And it was neat too. getting like I wouldn't normally necessarily get to see parents interacting with their children. And so getting to tell them like, wow, I can see the secure attachment that you've developed with your child coming through um, and name like specific moments that I saw. That was also a really lovely part of seeing people virtually. Yeah. Let's not romanticize it. It was definitely no, no, not no. Fun. I don't want to go back. Like, no. No. Any like uh, powers that be in the universe are listening. Do not bring COVID back. I do not miss it. But we'll knock on yeah, don't bring quarantine back at least. No. I really don't miss it. But you know, I think I missed like about five minutes of it. Like there was yes. like, a night or two of like you know of like my family all being cozy together. That felt really good. And after that, like no. You know, that being said, I think I feel like we learned a lot like we really um, and I feel like it's not a an accident that 
there's such an explosion in people being interested in therapy and trauma and family dynamics. I feel like the interest in that has exploded since COVID because like when you're stuck in your family dynamics and you can't go to the gym to escape it, you can't go to work to escape it, you can't like you're just in it 24 seven. I feel like everyone's like, what's this whole like family dynamics thing? Definitely. Yeah, it's been interesting reflecting with folks that I started seeing like in the thick of COVID when they were really stuck with their families and reflecting on like where they're at now. And like now they're in a place where they can actually process it because then it was like in the midst of the crisis. So that's it's cool to see. But again, not completely not romanticizing it, but it's cool to see that shift in people. For a lot of us, I feel like COVID made us make decisions to like move forward with projects and things. I know for me, that's when I, I mean, I started my book journey um, a little before COVID, but that's when I really intensified like the podcasting and the, you know, like this book has to come out like because Yeah, life is short and unpredictable. I feel like for a lot of us, those kinds of projects really started during COVID because it's like the world really is kind of messy. So if I want to get my stuff done, then I this is now when I can do it or when I must. Definitely. It won't happen. (laughs) Yeah, that was when, yeah, I was writing my book in the thick of COVID. Yeah. Is that when you started? Weirdly. They sent me my book contract the day I found out I was pregnant with my third child. Oh, wow. (laughs) Somehow my children are always like one step ahead of my career. And I remember, I think it was just when I was at a certain point in COVID where it was still extremely cautious, but I think I was maybe starting to see some clients outside, if that puts it into perspective. And she just turned one. So this was in 2021. And so, yeah, I think having that 10 month deadline (laughs) of like, you're going to have a baby in 10 months. So your book has to be finished by the time your baby is born. Yeah. Helped me to drive the book along. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had that throughout graduate school. That's really what I felt. I felt like being a parent as much as I always felt a little bit like the runt of the litter in my class in the sense I was always running late and running in and like, you know, um, I was also commuting, but like at the other side, yeah, kids have a way of focusing your attention. Um, I wrote a dissertation while nursing twins. So like, I know this and there's just something about like when we're parenting and working on a big project like this that I think people, you know, as much as it feels sometimes like, oh, gosh, I was like getting somewhere with this chapter and now I have to go upstairs because my kids are home from preschool or whatever. As much as that feels a little bit like sometimes it's that sense of like, okay, whoa, I really was getting somewhere. Yikes. Still, there is that focused attention of, okay, I have a two hour deadline because in two hours kids are coming home. When I was always a writer and when I was a writer as a teenager or when I was a writer, you know, before I had kids, I did let like a project take over a day because I could. Right. Yeah, it was really funny because I would literally write my book like I have to go to bed by 11 at night to be good for my kids and not in a bad mood the next day. And so if I say like they would hopefully 
be asleep by eight. I would have from eight to 11 to work on my book at night. And I was like, when I envisioned writing a book, like in college, I was like, oh, I'm going to go to the cafes in Paris. And instead I'm writing in my bed after my kids are asleep and hopefully everybody stays asleep and doesn't disrupt me. And I was like, Joan Didion would never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, I don't know. I feel like, you know, you do have to treat writing like your job and you do have to, you know, definitely. Do those but I mean, in any job, you have to balance your family and your life and, you know, things Absolutely. like that. What I've learned is that I need to get in writing every single day, except for my one heavy clinical day. Like I made a rule for myself that when I'm in full heavy clinical mindset, and that's the way I set up my schedule so that like I have clinical days and writing days because yeah. I, find I can't switch between the two. Um, but I try to write something and do something book related every single day. Because I find like once I get out of the writing mindset, getting back into it is challenging. Definitely. I am the exact same way. And then I would do the best, like I there were these cabins that I really like to go to that's like 45 minutes away. So I would take like a weekend sometimes where my husband would just have the kids and I would go and like really, really focus and steep myself in writing. And that would help me like get a lot done. So then I could sort of go back and edit. So yeah. spurts like that also really helped me. Yeah, I've done things like that. For me, it's more I like like just an anonymous motel room. Um, It just has to yeah. have the sunshine coming in. Like I have like I have motels where like I know where I want to stay. It doesn't matter. It just has to be like near a coffee shop with like you know, coffee that I can buy and bring back to my room it has to be good coffee. And then I'm good. It doesn't matter what city it's like, I can just go on to like, you know, any of those like travel sites and just like find, you know, like I have certain chains that I like, I like their sweets and I like, you know, okay, great. I'll go there to like, and not, that's where that, that city, I didn't even know that city existed, but sure. Like, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Anonymous room. I wish I could like go right in nature for a week. But, you know, yes. it unfortunately, you know, is not going to happen. The closest I can get is like thinking about my book while outside with my kids on the swing set, you know, right, right now, not going to happen. But I definitely did discover, and I think this was a superpower for me, was discovering that like I can write in short bursts and then go do something else if I'm disciplined about the short bursts. Definitely. Yeah, I think having children has helped me structure and get things done like as much as it was a luxury before to be able to just think all day and sit in front of my computer and not type anything it also really helped me to like make sure I got things done and especially the pregnancy there was just no choice but to get the words down on the page yes a pregnancy has a way of doing that. <laughs> you know, it really does. It's a, it's that like time, it's a deadline that is that deadline that like no matter what. And also for me, it was almost part of nesting. It's like, okay, I'm not yeah. like, you know, I don't know, ironing eucalyptus leaves and hanging them in my shower or lining my drawers with lavender. I am getting like at that point, it was like I'm getting my dissertation written because there's going to be two little humans in this world who are going to be very time consuming very soon. And I want the time and the energy and the headspace for them. So 
you know, Absolutely. that was nesting. And, you know, like I sometimes look at those accounts and I'm just like, there was a time in my life that I used to have a lot of inferiority when I would look at like some mom accounts. I actually had to unfollow certain mom accounts because I felt such shame. Like it would be like, I don't know how to make that kind of a braid. Never, I, I never will. My fingers will never cooperate. I can't make a bento box lunch. Like, you know, you're like color coordinating your entire playroom. Like, I'm not saying this from like a trivializing it. I'm saying this from like an awe, like, how did you do that kind of thing? Like, my fingers do not cooperate. Like, this does not compute. This is beautiful. I can hire you to do it for me, but I cannot do it myself. And I had to just unfollow because I was feeling such a sense of like, you know, my poor kids, like they will never have this cute bento box. Yeah. When I was in the early days of motherhood with my first, I didn't really have any friends that were also parents. And so I felt very, very lonely. And so I followed all of those Instagram accounts and I would like look at them at night while I was nursing my baby. And it looked so different than what I was experiencing in motherhood. Like my kids are not wearing all neutrals and uh, <laughs> not all their toys are wooden and beautiful. Uh, my house is not clean. And I was taking that in as like, oh, this is the norm for most people. And especially being a parent with a trauma history and having my own stuff come up in response to being in the very early stages of motherhood and experiencing intense postpartum depression, it looked so different than my own experience. And I didn't realize it was making me more depressed because oh, yeah. I think those accounts got so normalized. And some of them do share like hard, real things about parenthood, but it's shared with like beautiful pictures. And so we still can feel that disconnect of this is so different from my own experience. And then with my second child, I wasn't as attached to those accounts. I had many more friends who were now parents and could resonate on the same level as me. And I realized that wasn't the case for everyone. And so I did unfollow a lot of those accounts, but I think we just don't know at first. And a lot of it is just reaching out for connection because we're feeling lonely and isolated in new parenthood. Yeah. Like we're looking for that social or parasocial relationship or like another mom who gets it, but then she's so polished and curated that we do just feel it goes back to high school and like, you know, having yeah. those, like the mean girls table and you're looking at them and you're like, you know, I will never be that beautiful. Like I just it will never happen. Um, and f having that feeling of like inferiority and then shame, like my poor kids, like they're yeah. never having this. It's cute because when I so my trauma history, my um, my dad was very sick when I was a kid and my mom was um, basically the breadwinner of our home. Um, and she was a school guidance counselor. She was also in college at night. It was it was hard for her. And but one thing she taught me that was so validating right when right when I got married, she said, I want to teach you this phrase. Say it to yourself. I have other qualities. I was like, what do you mean? So she said, when I got married and I was in grad school and I was and I was working as a student teacher, my mother was like an old fashioned European housewife. And she would come to my house and she would be like, this is not how you run a home. Like you don't iron your sheets and you don't like, you know, like and and my mom learned to say to her like she was busy writing like, a you know, a thesis on like Le Perigorio and the original French because she was, you know, at that point studying 
romantic and Victorian poetry and prose was her like master's. Then she got a master's in counseling after that, because um, turns out that's not a great career path if you want to actually earn money. Like, no one cares. You know, like, my mom would, like, say this. Like, you know, it turns out the world doesn't have a ton of, like, employment opportunities for people with masters and, you know, subjects like that. So my mom learned to say to her, like, Ma, I have other qualities. Like, this is what I do. Like, you know, yeah, I'm not ironing the sheets, but I, you know, am a guidance counselor, you know. And it was so helpful for me to think that way about, like, you know, I have other qualities. Yeah, it's true. My my kitchen is not color coordinated and my kitchen is usually not Instagram ready, ready or worthy, but I do have other qualities. And those are things I value. Like, I don't value this all that much. I think that it's beautiful when other people can do it. I look at it with a certain level of awe. Like, I am not devaluing or, you know, trying to, like, say sour grapes about the people who do those things. I think they are, like, I think, like, wow. It's like watching someone play music at a level that I will never attain. Like, that is, right. like, wow, your fingers, how do they do that? You know, or watching sports, you know, and, like, it's like, wow. But that's all it is. It's wow. It's a spectator sport for me. Like, wow, your playroom is beautiful. Yeah, I think sometimes we can fall into a place of judgment around other parents. And I've found that in the times where my judgmental parts are coming up, it's usually because they're trying to protect me from something that I feel that I'm lacking. And so at first, I would feel like depression and confusion of not my life not looking like the Instagram moms. And then I moved to a place of judgment where I would like angrily text other mom friends and be like what is this like how does her life look like this right and then I realized that the judgment was actually around my own stuff and so I could turn it back toward myself and check in with like whoa if my judgmental parts are coming up what's happening more deeply for me like is it that I feel that I'm lacking in some way in my parenting? Is it that I feel I'm lacking in some way in my life? And I love that idea of I have other qualities, like we're not all going to be the same parents as each other. But we can still find connection and community in just being parents together and being parents in this time period. And just recognize that every single parent is trying to do their best. Yeah, I feel like giving them permission for me was hugely helpful. She has permission to be a better, you know, playroom coordinator than me, <laughs> or I don't even have a word for it, or like a better cook than me, or a better hairstylist than me. Like she has permission. It's okay. It doesn't mean I'm inadequate. She's allowed to be better than me. It's totally fine. We're both humans. Like in that, neither of us are better than the other. We're simply both humans. But she's a better hairstylist than me. You know, I don't even need to go anymore to like that part that would be like, I'm probably a better writer than her. Like, we don't need to go there. Like, she has permission to be better at styling here than me. And, you know, I definitely have that sense of like, recently, my daughter wanted a braid. And I was like, I just don't have those fingers. Like, if I have, we have a neighbor who knows how to braid hair really well, and I can ask her if she can do us a favor. She, she was in a performance and she needed her hair in a certain style. And we can ask her, this is just not me. I'm just not good at this. It's okay. I don't have to be. I think before I was conscious of that stuff, 
maybe I would have gotten upset at my daughter. Maybe I would have gotten, you know, like there would, would have been so many layers of like my inadequacy turning into annoyance at my daughter as opposed to just being like, yeah, so my fingers don't braid, but I know people who do braid and we can make that happen. Yeah, it's really funny because my daughter will always say like, her best friend is named Olive and she'll say like, well, Olive's mom does this. And I'll say like, I love that Olive's mom does that. Like, I'm sure Olive's mom would be happy to do that for you. That's not something that I'm able to do. Right. <laughs> and it takes such generosity and so much healing when we can say that and not feel threatened at all and not be like, well, well, I think that's ridiculous that Olive's mom does that and just be like, that's great. <laughs> Luckily, I love Olive's mom. Of course. <laughs> and there's we all have an olive's mom you know what i mean there's always that mom like you know there's always the neighbor you know there's always that mom at the playground there's always that mom that your kid comes home you know and and it can feel a little threatening but it also can feel like it also can feel just like i feel a sense of healing when i just can be like yeah that's just not something that i'm good at and that's fine we don't all have to be good at everything absolutely and i've found that as parents we always have like something to connect with each other on. There is no parent that is not experiencing any type of struggle. And so if we can also acknowledge that we don't know what's happening behind the scenes for that parent, just like they don't necessarily see my struggle, it helps me resonate more deeply and just know that we're all sort of sharing this journey together. For sure. I think that that's one thing maybe being on Instagram teaches us, you know, like what look what you see on the camera, what you don't see on the camera. But then also that idea that I can like do any one thing of any one person. Like if I see someone doing something like, oh, that's smart. She meal preps on Sundays or, oh, that's a cool idea. I never knew that they made that toy. I'll get that line for my playroom. I cannot do as well or perfectly as all the people's best moments on their best reels, right? I can do one of them. We we don't compare ourselves to one person. We compare ourselves to like all of them. And there's no way we're going to be the best of the best of, of all of their bests because that's not possible. Yeah. One thing that I always think about with this specific generation of parents is never before have we been bombarded with so much information about parenting, mental health, how parenting should look. Being parents in the age of social media is so different and we're not meant to take in that much information that quickly. And so when we're on Instagram or TikTok, we're like taking in like, oh, this fact about trauma and like, oh, I recognize that in me. Oh, I'm seeing that this person is making this for lunch for their kid. Oh, I need to take that in and remember to do that for my kid. Oh, this is how this person is organizing. And it is, as much as it's helpful, it's also a lot of pressure. I recently read something that said that full-time working parents today play with their kids more than stay-at-home parents in the seventies or something. And it had like the particular hours of what it was. And I think that because of all the input we get from social media, sometimes we don't pause and recognize all that we're doing well, or like 
we are doing so much better than prior generations because of all the information that we have and because of the ways that we're working on ourselves and trying to gentle parent and do all the things. And so there's also like that facet of social media and just recognizing this age that we're in of parenting. So true. I mean, this is a this is an auditory medium, so you can't see me like jumping for joy when you're saying that. But like, <laughs> it is so true. And I think that between trauma training our brains to look for the bad and look for what's wrong, and our brain neurologically being wired to look for the bad even before trauma, we tend to hyper focus on the bad and we don't sit there and go, well, look at all the good that I did today and look at all the you know, wonderful stuff and look at all the good enough stuff that I did today because we are always looking for, you know, it's also that we, we can't schedule our triggers the way we used to. You don't know what's going to come up in your feed. You know, you're scrolling social media. You don't know. You know, it's sort of like in the 80s, you might be like, oh, I'm in the mood of a good cry. So I am going to rent this movie from Blockbuster. Like, you know, like back then you were able to say that or do that. Even or, you know, I'm going to watch this TV show that comes on at this time because I just need a laugh right now. It's like you're on social media and you never know what like the next trigger is going to come up. Someone's going to post her pantry and like all those voices are going to be like and look at your pantry. And you, know, you just you just don't know. And that can also be something we've never done before. Absolutely. And it's interesting because with clients that I work with, sometimes their TikTok feeds will reflect where they're at in their mental health. So they'll be looking for certain videos that are depressing, and then that'll completely adjust their feed to keep getting those depressing videos. And I think it's so interesting and terrifying that like our social media feeds, the algorithm can like reflect where our mental health is, but also drag our mental health into a different place. Yeah. Because algorithms give us what they think we want, not right. what we need. So if right. algorithms like, oh, she wants dark, depressing and dreary. And what's even worse about that is like the algorithm gets very predictive. So if every time you are, you know, in a certain meeting that makes you feel very criticized, so then you're looking for videos around that the algorithm starts like, oh, it's Wednesday morning. Let me start giving her videos about that. So even if you've like worked through that mindset a little bit and you're a little bit in a stronger place, the algorithm is going to be pulling you right back down because it only knows who you were. It doesn't know who you want to become. Exactly. I love that. Doesn't know who you want to become, only who you were. That's all that algorithms do. And I find that that on the one hand, it's helpful when we are working on like a platform and things like that, like learning algorithms. On the other hand, it's terrifying. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're right. We are both parenting in a very brave new world that feels very, this is very uncharted territory. There are things that we can like still pull on from older sources, but there are things that like, I don't think anyone could have foreseen. Absolutely. And also I think going back to that idea that you are right, that we are doing so well and we have to acknowledge that. And even asking the questions, like someone who's tuning into this podcast is already asking questions that, you know, I have parents a lot of times saying to me, how do I know I won't become my parents? How do I know I won't redo this? 
And it's like, because you're asking me that question, right? You're here learning this. That's how you know. It doesn't mean you won't fall back into old patterns sometimes. It doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean recently on my social media, someone commented that she hates the term cycle breaker. I asked her if it's because she feels like that term feels a little simplistic. Like it feels like, so we're going to break a cycle and then we're all going to live happily ever after. And like, there's going to be like sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. And she said, yeah, that's how it feels. It feels like we're going to make other mistakes. And that's true. We will, at which we need to, because that's what good enough parenting is. But we're also not going to repeat those mistakes. And that's maybe sometimes something that we can focus on. So like, I hear why cycle breaking can feel simplistic or reductionist. But I also, I mean, I don't know if, if it's but or it's and, I also hear that it's a step and it's an important step. Exactly. And the biggest piece that I always think about and that I always share with parents is the biggest way that we're working on cycle breaking is by rupture and repair. The fact that we are brave enough to be imperfect parents and have the awareness around how our own history affects how we parent and to be taking in the information and trying to do better than maybe we experience. The biggest thing that we can do is when we have a rupture with our kids, because we are going to, to just take ownership and repair the rupture, because that also teaches our children that it's okay to be imperfect and helps them to reorganize around that rupture. So true. And so, and I think it's one of the things that maybe in earlier, like sort of maybe like the early 2000s, like a lot of the parenting approaches were almost like you're going to parent so that you'll never have to rupture and repair. But that's just so unrealistic for humans, like teaching our kids about rupture and repair. And yeah, it's true. We will, we, we will figure out whole new ways to mess up. It's true. And we can rupture and repair. Both of those are true. That, in that sense, that cycle can be broken forever. Absolutely. So I really want to thank you for being here. I think this was such a great conversation. I feel like so many post-traumatic parents are going to love your book. I know it was written for professionals, but it's written really that a layperson who's in this and who's been doing a lot of reading can read it and understand it. And, you know, like I said, the stuff about you putting in your own journals and your own work, I think it makes it so accessible to people. And I really recommend that everyone check out the book. We're going to link to it in the show notes and we're going to link to everywhere you can find Elise in the show notes. And I cannot wait to hear the post-traumatic parenting community's response to this episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. Same. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? Do you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. 
can't wait to hear from you.